0: The Big Light Presents Hello, I'm Sean MacDonald, you're listening to Blethered and my guest is journalist Jake Warren. Jake is a documentary maker who's worked for Vice, the BBC, Channel 4 and many others, going into places like North Korea and Liberia and getting up close and personal with Islamic preachers in the far-right English Defence League, more commonly known as the EDL. Not at the same time, obviously, but what a video that would be. We talk about Jake's experience in North Korea and the relationship that he's managed to cultivate with the North Korean government. You'll hear about the best garlic naan bread he's ever shared with an ISIS executioner and we talk about Message Heard, the phenomenal podcast company that he founded and one of its shows, Conflicted. I can guarantee you'll want to hear more about that because it's one of the best things that I've ever listened to. I hope you enjoy this chat. If you do, feel free to share it because it always helps. Cheers. working at Vice, was that your, is that your first foray into journalism or did you start out elsewhere? Cause I've got a lot of questions about, about that. Uh,
1: it was, I mean, I kind of started in, in in a bit of a weird way, really. I didn't, um, study journalism or anything like that. I, I guess my first kind of foray into it was, was when I was at university and I was a bit of an idiot and, um, I didn't, you know, didn't particularly do that well in my studies, should we say, but I, hmm. I was really interested in doing other things. And I kind of got into sort of making weird videos and um, I was part of something called the tab when it first started, which was kind of like an opportunity for students to try their hand at, at journalism or just tell interesting stories of their world, but not in a way where it was like, I was very bored of like 19 year olds writing think pieces about this is the problem with Palestine and Israel. And it's like, (laughs) no one cares about what you think. And you you know, you're you're kind of just replicating whatever your point of view is that you've read in the newspaper that day. Right. I was more interested about trying to tell stories, you know, of my world as a student. Mm -hmm. And I did all these stupid videos. You know, some of it was like interviewing pissed people outside of clubs about current affairs and kind of taking the piss out of them. And I don't know, I just kind of really got into that. And that's a stupid example. But when I was at uni, the one of the first things I did was EDL were doing a big rally um, a couple of miles down the road. And, And I was at uni in Leeds And they were doing a big rally about a community center that was supposedly closing and turning into a mosque, which was a load of bollocks. Mm -hmm. And I basically just went and filmed it and spent the day with them. And I kind of, we got, you know, turned out like an eight-minute piece. You know, looking back at it, it, it doesn't exactly fill me with pride looking at the quality of it. But it kind of, I just, I got a real taste for just spending time and trying to understand and also just like documenting the weird, the extreme, the nutty the misfits, whatever you want to, I've always been really interested in kind of like trying to understand why people believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. And the EDL, I mean, that was an eye-opening experience, right? They're yeah. Not not particularly nice people.
0: Was there any repercussions of, of that? Like in terms of not taking things, I don't imagine the type of people who take anything particularly well, if it is, seems to paint them in a bad light.
1: So, no, yeah, they. I mean, they weren't happy with it. That's certainly um, <sighs> for for true, um, and that's because I just let them make themselves look like idiots, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't need me sort of wagging a finger, going, "Excuse me, you're wrong." Actually, you just give these most of these people a microphone, and they, you know, they embarrass themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Tommy Robinson, um, I remember he blocked me on Twitter, and he sent me a sort of semi-threatening message or something, saying like, "You know, you're an idiot," and you know. Your, your lefty student or something like that i mean it was it was a, it was a weird experience because I, at that point and maybe arguably still to this day i didn't have a fucking clue what i was doing mm. uh, and i turned up and the only person i could get to come and be my cameraman was an iraqi guy called alamin <laughs> or ali and he had long hair you know he, he he very obviously looked middle eastern and i said to him look we're gonna go down to this rally if, as long as you feel comfortable to film and he was like yeah yeah i'll come and so I turned up and I'd kind of spoken to a few of the organizers and made contact with them and kind of, you know, it's all right looking at me. You know, I'm a I'm a pasty white bloke. I could turn up and they could look at me and think, oh yeah, he's one of ours. Yeah. And I turned up with my with this guy and they could see I could see him kind of looking at him, thinking, Oh, where's he from? And I just <laughs> went, This is my mate, Alessandro from Italy. He's gonna do the camera today. And they were like, Yeah, all right then. And then I remember quite quickly what I had to do was they they kept passing me like Lambrini and I had to kind of drink Lambrini in front of them to kind of like earn their trust. It was a very (laughs) weird experience. Like it wasn't, I had no idea what I was doing and it kind of, it's like a, I think you could probably still watch it on YouTube. It's It's a very strange little sort of, day out with the EDL. I'd love to see that.
0: Um, Lam- Lambrini is, is there some meaning behind that? Because I'm just imagining they're saying, all right, love it th- down then, tell us what you think. <laughs> yeah. I mean. it's like, yeah, it just seems so detached from what I would
1: have expected them to be at least drinking Carling or Strongbow or something. Exactly. You know, some John Smith or some tenants at least. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I I mean, I couldn't, who knows maybe they that's a thing maybe the mm-hmm. EDL really enjoy Lambrini maybe that's one of their kind of uh, signifiers I don't know I mean I can I, can, I remember it tasting like shit yeah um, it's
0: not not particularly nice I'm sure it's it's something that I've resorted to after parties when there's nothing else going when you've you know you've raided the whole cupboards and you get to the very back and you're like fuck it Lambrini that's all there is
1: yeah I, I mean it took me back to um, experiences I probably would not want to do again you Know uh, when everything else is gone,
0: the uh, so my perception of, of vice let, let's just, I suppose, we should, I possibly, probably, sorry, should have done this earlier. Let's explain vice. Um, now we're, we'll move to that. So, you've we will talk about how you made the jump or how you sort of ended up working there. But, vice, my perception is it's a form of journalism that focuses on storytelling, um, you know, mm. getting into the fabric of issues that are overlooked by traditional media. Um, focusing on things like terrorism, dictatorships, drugs, crime, corruption, underground communities—that's obviously a very vague description. If you want to describe vice for anyone who wouldn't be aware of it, uh, first of all, if you could.
1: So I mean, it's kind of changed a lot over the over the years. Vice. Um, they used to have a line which I always thought was quite good, which was kind of like documenting the absurdities of the human condition or something like that. So it was kind of like just everything that's weird and nutty and wonderful about people they got involved with, which mm. I, which was great. And if you talk to people that have either worked for Vice or or kind of really know Vice, they they talk about there being two Vices. So old Vice, which was the you know how it started, which was kind of like this gonzo. Um, you know, get stuck in, there's no rules. It's, you know, just kind of telling stories that are unvarnished, without a particular spin or bias, just getting to the, you know, the heart of interesting stories. That was kind of old vice and it was very kind of fuck you and in your face. And mm. you know, you could see why young people in particular really wanted to kind of were attracted to that kind of storytelling and that kind of journalism, because it was there was not really anything else like that. And then there's new vice, which is kind of this you know like anything with the success of an organization when it gets investment when it grows when it gets bigger and it has to grow up a little bit it kind of had to leave those irreverent attitudes and the way of kind of telling stories behind but the problem is they never really replicated um i think you know necessarily a a better way of doing things it kind of became half-baked um sort of uh, in, you know, per, impersonation of of some of the more traditional media outlets because, you know, it wasn't that, that, that it kind of flew in the face of what made Vice great to start with, and also bad in many ways as well.
0: At which point did you join then? But would it have been it in that sort of more period of its infancy when there was the the fuck you yeah. and evident attitude?
1: Mine was a bit strange. I mean, I never. Um, I actually started working for Vice. Um, Via via Vice in the U.S. actually, rather than originally, you know, initially Vice in the UK. And I never actually had a staff position at Vice in the UK. I did a fair amount of work for them, but all of the main stuff I did was actually based out of the LA office. Mm. And I really kind of did that. Uh, well, the reason I got offered a job and offered work is I sent a cold email to one of the co-founders of Vice, uh, Saru Shalavi, because um, I basically. Had Spent a period of time, I guess, kind of trying to ingratiate myself with particular individuals or communities or stories that I felt were going to be were really interesting. No one else was doing or were going to become really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I and I managed to ingratiate myself with the North Korean regime, which I appreciate is a pretty strange thing to say. Um, <laughs> but I have, I did and I probably still do. I haven't been working on it so much, but I have quite good access to North Korea. Um, and i kind of got to a point where i was looking to try and maybe tell some stories about north korea in a slightly different or more interesting way and at that time you know vice was in its ascendancy right they'd already done something in north korea before they'd already done you know the kind of journalism and documentaries and storytelling that i was really attracted to you know going to liberia and hanging around with warlords and you know doing the nutty kind of stuff which i loved um and i literally just sent a cold email to the two founders of vice you know, guessing their email addresses. Didn't you know? I didn't know anyone. Mm-hmm. And one of them just got back to me. And he goes, "Yeah, that sounds quite interesting. Let me put you in touch. Char- you know, put you in touch with Bob or something." And then I ended up talking to this guy um, in America. And yeah, from that, I I ended up getting hired, uh, not just just do that, but also to do some other stuff as well, which um, was great. And I loved, I loved, I loved it there at that time.
0: Before we do move on to the other ones, let's talk about North Korea. So you're saying that you ingratiated yourself with the North Korean regime, which is. I've never heard anybody say that, even on TV or anything. So that's interesting in itself. Did that come as a result of your involvement with Vice, or was there some way that you had managed to create that
1: relationship beforehand? No, it was, it was, it was. I, I did that um, bizarrely. It was, it was all me in a weird way. So yeah, I mean, I, that I appreciate that's a, it's a batshit crazy thing to say, right? Uh, and not many people uh, have that relationship with North Korea. I kind of. um I guess I saw a bit of an opportunity and uh, because we have um, in the UK, we have full diplomatic relations with North Korea where they don't have that in the US. So they have an embassy here in the UK, which is like a semi-detached house in um, a dodgy bit of London, which <laughs> like flies a flag. It's very, very strange. That is and and I, and I'd always been, you know, like I said, I've always been very obsessed and and, and indeed motivated by um when I want to try and sound smart, extremities of human interest, but basically, you know, <laughs> yeah. ex- extremists and, and and kind of and things that are just out there that are not accepted. And North Korea is kind of this last bastion, isn't it? It's like the last place behind the Iron Curtain, you know, oh, yeah. where you're you're not allowed to go, and no one really knows anything. And I was, you know, fascinated by that. And and I and I kind of figured to myself, was like, well, has anyone ever tried to just sort of get in, get in with them? And I I figured I I would, and I knew someone. Had been to North Korea before. And I kind of messaged him and I was like, Look, how'd, how'd you get in? You know, how did you, there must be someone that you speak to. And he said, Well, you've got to meet this English guy um, who effectively is sort of one of the last communists and works for the North Korean regime. <laughs> I was thinking, Oh, yeah, I'd like to meet him. And I, he kind of facilitated an introduction and I kind of spent some time with him and kind of passed a few tests. And then he introduced me to the North Korean ambassador and his team in the UK. And just through kind of, you know, I was turning up and I made no pretenses about I'm an apologist and I'm a communist and look at my pin badge. I just said, look, I think there's interesting stories to be told uh. in slightly different ways. I'm not an apologist. You know, if you're interested in that, I'd love to to talk about that. And I kind of, it took a really long time. And, you know, you kind of, they're it's it's a bit strange because they're very old school, you know, with a lot of things, it's contracts and, you know, legal agreements and stuff. North Korea is a bit stranger in the sense that it's like, if you kind of prove yourself, ingratiate yourself, show that you're, you, know, you have some ideas that they might be interested in, they are kind of like, all right, we'll trust you until you do something that means that mm. we don't trust you anymore. And then you know, you're blacklisted. And, and one of the things for me that I was always very interested in is that I think that there's a key distinction between the North Korean regime, which obviously is a bad thing, and the North Korean people, you know, mm. 20 plus million people that we kind of portray as Stepford Wise robots, goose stepping on command and crying on cue, mm. is not a fair representation of actually their lived experiences, or it's or not the, t- the total sum of their lived experiences. And I kind of wanted to try and find interesting ways of telling other stories that, that didn't gloss over or promote or, you know, make excuses for what that regime is and what it does, but also you know, look at you know, the, the human experience in a, through a slightly different lens.
0: hmm The um I think that that is something that has only recently come to light, um, from my perspective, because I would just dismiss them as being a bunch of robots as well until I started reading things and thinking it comes down to or realising it comes down to a case of or a matter of survival. If they don't play this game, then they could be the sort of wait a minute, right? They'll they'll be singled out as such as why you're not towing the party line what what was the first story that you got to then tell us did you get to travel to north korea and then just get to film or like how does that work i can't even
1: begin to imagine yeah i mean it takes a long time to do anything with north korea um they're very obviously um you know they're very cautious when it comes to dealing with the outside world because in their mind their fingers have been stung so many times before. You know, mm-hmm. you, there's you, you, that same documentary with the kind of grey filter and it kind of you know secret filming has been done lots of different times. And I wasn't particularly interested in doing that, not because it's not a valid story, but because it's already been done so many times, mm-hmm. and I'm not the right person to do that. What I, how I, I guess, secured and really piqued their interest was um something that you don't really associate with north korea which is sport so they you know like in anything sport is we talk about it being this apolitical thing you know it's this something that brings people together and we're all in this together and yeah you know comradeship and you know competition and healthy rivalry and all that stuff but actually sport is one of the most political things in the world especially Mm. for north korea you know if they're you know Judoists, which I think did won a gold medal in Atlanta 96, I think it was, and their you know flag and their national anthem is played on American soil. That's a political win for them because they're being recognized. And no one ever really goes, oh, look at that nutter from that nutty country who won a gold medal. You go, oh, well done. You won a gold medal in, you know, you're talking about it for their achievements. And they, I think, clearly recognize this. And, they, and at some point they decreed, Kim Jong-un decreed, that they're going to become the world's best at sport. And so I was like, well, that's really interesting. Let's tell, you know, let's see how you're going to become the world's best at sport. Give me Mm -hmm. the opportunity to try and show the world how you're going to become the world's best at sport. And they were like, all right, come over. And after a period of time, I went there and, you know, managed to film some stuff and still having conversations to this day about um, still doing some stories there. Um, And yeah, it was nuts. I mean, just what a truly bizarre place. I mean, it's like Narnia, but yeah. Even weirder. I would really like to go. I'd be really scared, though. I'd be really on edge that I would
0: do something wrong. You know, you hear stories about people stealing, um, mm. po- like propaganda posters. And what was that guy? Was his name? I'm just going to make this up. Was his name Otto Warmbier?
1: That's totally off the yeah, top of Otto my head. Otto Warmbier. I cannot, yeah, he, I I stayed cannot in believe hotel I where where he stole name. that thing. Yeah, that's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah, it's, um. It, well, so this is where, um, it gets into kind of a bit of a moral quandary as well, right? It's because they rely on tourism for foreign, hard foreign currency, which props up the regime. Mm-hmm. But you can, there are ways you can go there. Um, I, I think the key distinction is that, you know, for like, especially for like Otto Warmbier and, and people like that, is there were companies that were operating and probably still are operating today you know, selling tours of North Korea as if it was a joke. Like it's Uh this big pastiche show. Come and have a look at the funny statues of the dictators and the people that all, you know, wear pin badges and Uh live in, you know, uh, 1984. And actually, that's really dangerous because if you don't understand that if something goes wrong there, there's no one to get you out, especially if you're an American. You know, you're going to be doing... Hard labor, or you know, being you, you know, being held prisoner. You, and I think that there's not enough respect and research into the fact that actually this is a dangerous place to go. Oh. So there are ways you can go, and but you really have to be um, intelligent and thoughtful about how you're going to act there, because there are certain red lines that you can't cross.
0: So, so I would say. Was-
1: the, it's not, it's not. Don't go, but I think it's you have to really think about why you're going and how you're going to act if you are going to go. Ensure mm-hmm. respect for it. That's really
0: scary, isn't it? Because as a British passport holder or a, U, a US passport holder, you always just assume that no matter what happens, overall, mm. unless it's to a complete extreme, I'm going to be all right. Like the like the Foreign Office is going to come and get me out. That that is honestly how I would feel about being anywhere. Um, but yeah, as you say, there is no entry point like. If you're an American citizen, you're like you're absolutely you're, you're screwed. What was it he did? Did that guy steal a po- just a poster, like a propaganda poster?
1: Well, it's, I actually um, stayed in the same hotel that he was staying in, and right. I think I was there before him because I think I actually just, actually saw the poster that he tried to tear <clears> down. <throat> um, yeah, I think it was you know, like in any sort of crypto communist country, they're big on you know shows of. Uh, you know, ridiculous art and posters, mm-hmm. and, you know, iconography. And I think it was, there was a big poster that kind of hung over the place where you went in for breakfast. And I think he just quite literally tried to tear it down, you know, as a memento, as a keepsake mm-hmm. or take pay out part of it off. And, you know, that is then, that's kind of like in their eyes, I guess, like desecration of their their belief, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <sighs> And and, that, and he lost his life because of that, you know, which is so what, tragic. Because the story... If, and wrong.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, the story that I recall was that he stole the poster, he was sentenced to something mental, like let's 25 years hard labour. Mm. Then America managed to negotiate him getting out, but he was dead within two or three days of arrival back in the US. Mm. Is that what happened? Or did he die
1: en route back or something? So they... Um, I mean, I should, I should caveat it by saying I'm not an expert in this particular case Hmm. or or any of them in all honesty, but my understanding of it was, yeah, you know, he went through the, uh, the show trial that, you know, people go to where you read the pre-prepared script about how you are a, you know, capitalist dog and Hmm. you are a spy and, you know, trying to, you know, bring down the regime, all that stuff where you read it off a bit of paper and you don't blink, um, Yeah, you're sentenced to whatever it is—ridiculous hard labor—and then it's negotiations to try and get you out. And usually, they do get you out, right? But you could be there a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I think common consensus is that he—I mean—that he was beaten. You know, he was—he was—he was was literally killed. Um, I I think what they did was they realised that maybe they'd gone too far, um, and they did release him to the US. A couple of days before he died but i think mm-hmm. when he was you know there was talk about him when he was being flown back over on the plane that he is you know with basically in a comatose state um you know unresponsive pretty much and so close to death so maybe it's you know i think some people claim that he was kind of beaten into a coma um something of that nature i mean clearly they were responsible if for, for his duty of care you know for the fact uh-huh. that he was taken into, into custody, you know, in North Korea and something happened. You know, so I think that people try to claim maybe he had a, you know, sort of a cataclysmic stroke or something like that. I mean, who knows? And no one probably ever will know. But they were responsible. And it was their duty of care for a seemingly normal, healthy, what, 20-something-year-old kid to, yeah. to then end up in that state and then lose his life. I mean, it's shocking.
0: It's terrifying, and yet still I really want to go. That's obviously the you know the the authorities are also very draconian they're very authoritarian and stuff, but as you mentioned that the mm-hmm. regime is very different to the people i mean i suppose mm-hmm. I've, i' just want to understand in a walkthrough let's just say when you arrive and do you arrive in Pyongyang or do you have to travel through pyongyang
1: yeah well, see, so you there's very few ways that you can get in <clears throat> if you want to fly. You have to fly to China first. And mm. then from China, you fly into into Pyongyang. There's like uh there's only two ways I believe you can do it. You can either fly Air China, which has some dodgy little rickety aeroplane that flies, you know, from Terminal 97 at the back of Beijing Airport. Mm. Um, and they also have Air North Korea. Now, you gotta be a brave man to fly Air North Korea because they're <laughs> yes. flying like Antonov like 60s airplanes where they like don't have the mechanics and the parts to even like make sure it's right so I flew Air Air China but yeah you fly into into Pyongyang and then I was kind of met by um by our hosts and kind of guides and stuff and kind of whisked away in a kind of uh, it's very strange I had I was there for maybe like 10 days or something and um, you know it wasn't with, when you're invited by the government it's a bit different it's not like going on a tour like if you pay to go on a tour I kind of feel that that's the equivalent of being like an open top bus of London mm-hmm. where you know you're going on a direct route and the person's going oh look at that take a photo over there but you can't really ever step away from that mm-hmm. whereas if you've kind of are invited you have a bit more freedom bizarrely and so I kind of was we were given this kind of I can, the only way I can describe it is kind of like a tour bus for a shitty band you know it looked like the kind of scooby-doo mystery wagon (laughs) kind of like sat in it and drove around in it all day and kind of oh let's go there and oh let's go there and and we just kind of drove around and went to all these different places and you know a lot of it was um to do with sports because obviously that was the the main reason i was there and i mean the sporting infrastructure in that country is nuts as well i mean like they basically built uh The only way I can describe it's like a permanent Olympic village. So, if you are a child in North Korea and you show any aptitude at any sport from like the age of five, they basically make you just go live there until you win a gold medal and bring (laughs) glory upon the nation. And but because obviously everything is always bigger than it needs to be, it's always more bold and more grandiose. They have like a permanent Olympic village called Chongchun Street, and you kind of go down it. And whereas you may, you or I maybe you know we'd expect you know basketball teams to have like a sports hall or like a mm-hmm. ping pong players to play. so everything sort of like had its own stadium so you'd like walk in and there'd just be like you know 30,000 seats and two blokes playing ping pong under a flag mm. of North Korea with like a, a you know a dingily lit light bulb yeah. and it's just like there was no need for this to be for like 30,000 seats or something completely insane yeah. and they've got the largest football stadium in the world as well 120,000 seats
0: mm. Fuck it
1: now. it's called the Mayday Stadium It's deploy. It's shaped like a deployed parachute, and I think it seats 120,000. It's definitely the 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 biggest stadium, biggest capacity stadium currently in the world. And I watched the game there as well, and that was nuts Mm -hmm. because people um, had clearly. I I, I think clearly, I watched some uh, a women's game there, like a cup game or something, and uh, and they actually have North Korea actually have one of the best female football teams in the world. But they clearly had done it like, right, you know, if you live north of Smith Street and south of, you know, John Street, everyone's got to turn up to the stadium to watch this game. So you've got all these people kind of sitting there, like, you know, nearly 120,000 people or whatever, but there's no atmosphere. Everyone's just kind of looking around going, (laughs) what the fucking hell is this? And I'm watching it just thinking, this is bizarre. Yeah, that I mean, see, that's what I would love to see, like just how how bizarre
0: it is. The things that kind of blow my mind is that yeah, countries depend on influences or input or um, assistance from other nations when it comes to developing things, whether it's structurally, whether it's through expertise mm. in engineering, whether it's through architectural design or labour, or even through... I don't know, like, sort of culturally entertain, like, things in terms of entertainment. And I just find it nuts how one country can be, no matter how big it is, to be completely closed off. For me Mm -hmm. to hear that they have a 120,000-seater stadium, I'm thinking, how? Like, how is it not falling apart? Like, how is it not a death trap? Or how (laughs) does it even become? Where do they get the actual resources in terms of material resources? Like, are they getting it from China? Like, are the Chinese, you know, do, do you have any answer or like any light you can
1: shed on that? And I mean, I don't expect you to have all of the answers, but it just blows my mind. Well, so they gave me a tour of it as well at a different time when it was, when there wasn't a game going on. And I got to like go all around it, you know, go into this center circle and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of realize that it's this huge monument, you know, because that's what everything always is. You know, It's mm-hmm. 120,000 seats. And you realize they can do that quite easily because what what have they got? they've got a workforce that's going to do whatever you tell them to do. Mm -hmm. They're quite mineral rich, you know, so there's lots of stone. It's easy to make this great big stadium. But then when you Mm -hmm. look closer and you look at kind of like the cheapness of the plastic seats or, you know, the rubbish sort of astroturf grass and they're going, look at our magnificent stadium. It's the best one you've ever seen, isn't it? And you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is amazing. (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's amazing feet on one level because it is, you know, just to see a stadium that's that big. But then you kind of look a little bit closer and you realize that actually it's, it's not exactly high quality in terms of yeah. what the stuff they've got to put in it. Um, and, and, and that's, but that's how the country works, right? You know, Juche, their, their system of belief, which is, you know, kind of bastardized communism in many ways, literally means self-reliance, hmm. you know, and that's the only way they can survive. With all of the, you know, it's, it's them against the world. With all the sanctions they have, you know, self reliance is, you know, if you if you if you can't be self reliant in that situation, they would have they would have crumbled a long time ago. Do you think? Do you think a,
0: the time will come when they when they will crumble, or do you think they they've got they have the I don't know the the resources and the the wherewithal to to just press on?
1: I think it's a hard one to know. Um, I mean, I personally think that for such a long time, you know, and, and literally since the 1940s, right, a, a, large, a, a large reason for why they've managed to maintain their system of rule is not obviously just through sort of the harsh measures of, of how they rule, but also being able to stem the flow of information, you yeah. know, being able to withhold the reality of how the outside world looks. And actually with technological advances, you can't do that anymore. You know, you can stand on a mountain or a hilltop in North Korea now, and you can probably pick up a free 4G signal from South Korea. Uh How do you stop that stem of information from reaching you and therefore awakening and understanding? Actually, we've been told something that's not quite true here about the outside world. Uh That is really hard. And the other problem that they have is succession. Because they've built this dynastic rule you know of the kims they've been you know glorified as gods almost um you know the the grandfather Kim il-sung who died in nineteen ninety four i think um he is still the president of that country <clears throat> despite him being dead i mean I've been to birthday parties for him at the embassy where you sing happy <laughs> birthday to him as if he's still alive i mean you know completely bizarre That's um, weird. but they they but they also have a problem with with succession because um there is no direct male heir of age to take over mm. from uh, from Kim Jong Un. Um, supposedly, he has a young son, but if he was to turn his toes up tomorrow, and you know there were accusations the other month that he that he had died, who would be left to run the country in that same not 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 just the same you know under the same politics or same in the same way, but actually who has who has that legitimacy through being mm. a Kim? um and also they, they there's this, there's an expression with them is that you know that they're more Confucian than the chinese and 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 that is that you know its it's this idea of um you're born into your place within the world, and it's not a particularly uh egalitarian place when it comes to women, shall we say mm-hmm. you know female leadership is you know, I know he's got a sister would they accept that i mean who knows it'd be pretty modern for North Korea to
0: yeah. I would ju- I would give anything to be able to be a fly in the wall as well in, in terms of just your average household or just somebody going about their, their daily business. Um, I think the the fascination, obviously and understandably, is on the regime and how that works and how that would continue. Did you get any interaction or any genuine interaction yeah,
1: you, with the public? You do. I did a bit. I did a bit, and 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 I think that there's there's always a degree of wariness and there's always a degree of pre-plannedness where they're going to take you and, you know, who you're going to talk to and stuff like that. They really want you to see, Mm. but there's, you do have sort of um, genuine interactions with people. And, and especially when it was kind of, when you were kind of off, if that makes sense, you know, if you, if you're out for meals or you were just going from one place to the next, and especially with it being around sport, a lot of the places I went. Sport is clearly one thing that they do have an understanding with the outside world. Like I remember one kid kind of looking at me and going, Wayne Rooney. And I'm thinking, you <laughs> bastard. I don't look anything <laughs> like Wayne Rooney. But, you know, he's probably, ne- he's probably never seen someone that looks like me before, right? Yeah. And if you watch football and you have an understanding of the outside world, then, that, you know, just the fact that he was saying that was, you know, tell, it's telling in of itself that they yeah. actually have an understanding of who star football players are from around the world. Um, I mean I, at least I like that's what I tell myself you might have just thought I actually look like Wayne or if, if, if case, <laughs> gutted no I would, um, I would say it's definitely your yeah, I mean, explanation yeah I mean I, I mean like there's one so there's two examples that really stick in my mind um, and I'm conscious I've just been babbling on about North pages no, but, wages, but there's, I'm there's, there's it there's there's two two kind of yeah. Two things that, I mean, I had loads of nuts experience, but two things really stick in my mind. One was they said, look, we're going to take you out for a dinner to a traditional Korean restaurant, which was clearly like a, uh, a place for, you know, party members for, you know, top people. Mm-hmm. And it took us to a really nice Korean restaurant. You know, it's kind of, um, traditional Korean. It had like sliding doors and, you know, we were drinking and having a good time and I said, oh, I've got to go to the loo, you know, where's the, where's the toilet and, you know, down there on the right and as I kind of went out and I slid open a door of kind of expecting to go into a toilet and it was like a, a room that was decked out like a Bavarian beer hall, like a beer keller and like, There were all these like North Korean military people in uniforms, like drinking steins of beer, and all the North Korean barmaids were wearing Lederhosen and had like their hair and plaits. And I kind of like just stood there (laughs) and I was just like, I really want nothing more than to like just come in here and like play some beer pong with you lads and just like chat to you. (laughs) But they all just stared at me. And it was so uncomfortable. It was like two or three seconds. I was like, this is literally like going through the wardrobe in Narnia. And also this beer keller was like clearly built by someone that had been to like one, like twice. So like half the things were kind of like semi wrong. Yeah. And I just stood there and I was like, really sorry. I've like got the wrong room and just had to slide this sort of parallel universe shut. (laughs) And I was just like, God, I wish I'd gone in there. And then the other one is, well, I don't know if I should tell this one, but fuck it. I will. Um, you know, obviously gambling and stuff is not encouraged, but there Mm. is a kind of semi legal casino that you can go to. I won't say where it is, but, and I went to it and I think it's mostly for kind of Chinese businessmen and, you know, people like gambling. And I went down and I was, um, you know, people were clearly very wary that I was there, you know, white Western Mm. face. What the hell is he doing in here? And they were playing all these games. I don't know. I, have no idea actually what these games were and it was very strange there was like lots of people crowded around particular tables and they almost had like umpires people sort of sitting in sort of like tennis umpire style seats Uh you know where you're like you're sitting off the ground they were clearly like looking at something and I was thinking I've got got to like play something or or they're going to think I'm you know here to do something untoward or whatever so I went over to a table where there was like um, a female croupier for want of a better word and there was no one playing it and this game looked like hieroglyphics right I had no idea what this game was and you know there was no spinning there was no cards there was no dice just these weird patterns on this table in front of me and i took out like a a ten dollar note and i slid it across you know thinking oh you know i'll I'll play that you know they'll they'll, then the people will think that i'm here to just you know have, have a fun evening and the woman kind of took it she looked at me for like two or three seconds and she just went you lose and like Nothing had been given to me, like no cards, nothing spanned, like nothing. It was just like, I was thinking, oh, double or quits. no." And I kind of took that as a message, like, right, I'm clearly not that welcome here. Yeah. And this is for, for, for invited guests and for people that are allowed. So I pissed off before I got in any trouble. That is absolutely nuts. And then when it comes to the point that you depart, how, is, how do they leave
0: it? Is it just a sort of shake of the hand? Thank you. Or do they say, well, keep in touch? Because exactly.
1: It's just all mental. Well, I, I I can't remember what I said. So I just remember thinking, oh, you know, my luck's not with me tonight, or something. Like make a little joke of it and yeah. then just piss off quickly. And then- um, yeah, it's it's such a bizarre place, man. I mean, it, it's yeah. I mean they, they've got they've got a football academy where they're trying to train the best players to then effectively farm them out through Europe to become you know the next. Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. See, what's it's very ob- strange.
0: What's obviously crazy about that as well is if they genuinely want to farm them out, do they expect that they'll come back? I'm pretty sure it was there not like a programme in which they would allow people to leave on the basis that, now you must come back. I might be getting mixed up with Soviet
1: Russia, actually, but I mean... It's- well, it's similar in all of those things where it's um, for any worker from North Korea who... Um, <clears throat> Lives and works outside the country, you're expected to give um, a percentage of your earnings to the government um, f- of your foreign earnings to the government. Um, so that's one way that you know incentivizes actually to have people that work all around the world because you're mm-hmm. getting more foreign money um, and you know and the other way is the same nasty ways that they they do it in other ways, which is you know if you don't come back. The people that you love and care about are going to be the ones that suffer the consequences, and mm-hmm. not you. Um, and also remember that we're dealing with seventy years of, you know, education and indoctrination of to think of a certain way about the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's quite hard to to you know, one jaunt into a into a nightclub in London is not going to necessarily make you. I suddenly re re-im- everything you think about the world but um yeah you know, but that's also a problem right people it's a, that's how you it's a good opportunity to defect hmm. do you see yourself going back for any reason
0: is there any work projects that you're working on i i'm hopeful
1: um i'm hopeful i've got i've got a couple of things a couple of irons in the fire so to speak that i um can't really talk too much about, but I have thing, things in, in progress um, that I'm hopeful I'll be able to go back and I'm, and I'm hopeful that um, that we will be able to do some podcasting work there. Uh, it, might, it, may not, it may not be possible, but mm. uh, I'm hopeful at this stage is, is how I would describe it. I, I think I've got like, you know, my aim was always, I wanted to be the first Westerner to interview Kim Jong-un. Mm. Now, am I ever going to be that person? Almost certainly not, but you know, have I got an opportunity more than most people? I'd say probably yes, Mm. because of some of the stuff that I've done with them before, and kind of I've had that period of ingratiation where there is a little bit of trust there. Um, Who knows? You know, if you if you don't try, you know, Mm -hmm. the answer is definitely no. I think what's most
0: remarkable about that is that while you. The chance may be somewhat low that you'll be the first Westerner to interview Kim Jong Un. The fact that it is a feasible proposition in reality, or more feasible as you say, for than for any other person, is is quite mind blowing. Do they do they keep in touch? Do they keep tabs on you in any way?
1: Uh, I'm actually a bit upset. I used to always get a uh, a New Year's Eve card, a New Year's card from the uh, from the North Korean embassy, saying, <laughs> no "You know, dear Jake, Happy New Year" with like a picture of like a soaring eagle or something. Um, didn't get one this year or last year, so I was a little bit upset about that. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm, I will probably get invited back to. They have a couple of events a year where they allow you know people that they know and trust to come and celebrate their National Day and stuff like that. And and I was born on the actual on the day of on their national day as well. So they like that. They're like, mm. oh, you know, it's uh, that's that's you know but that's destiny. good omens. Where, exactly.
0: where is the uh, the semi detached house that they use for their embassy?
1: It's um, in a place called Acton Town. If you've ever been there, which is uh, I think not too far have... away from Ealing, is it it's, on? You,
0: um, i was going to say is it on the DL? Do you go on the DLR through Acton Town? Uh,
1: I think it's I think it's the Northern Line actually um there's a couple of ways i mean yeah it's like strange semi suburbia off a, off a, a road kind of i mean you know there's just you just got neighbors next door you know in the semi detached house you <laughs> just look out the side window and see the you know the d p r k flag just flailing about in the wind. I mean, I remember standing outside in the garden once and just a neighbor was like looking at me through a window. And I remember just thinking, he must think, what the fuck is that bloke up to? As I'm eating like a cold, you know, prawn fried thing. That's hilarious. Um, I, I mean, yeah, if you're ever down in London and you want to come with me, I'm sure they'll let, they'll, they'll let me bring you. Mate, I tell you what, and
0: I'm—I I was actually just thinking, how do I suggest that in a polite way? I definitely. <laughs> so, so uh, I will be back down in London so, as as soon as lockdown
1: permits. So, um, I'll, I'll let you know next time I'm invited to something, and I'll—I'll I'll see if I can bring you along. Excellent. That's exactly what I'm master. One word to the warning is they won't understand a fucking word of what you say.
0: <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> then there can be no can there can be no way of me really getting myself in trouble by saying the wrong thing. Yeah. So what about that exactly. whole dictatorship, eh? Yeah. Another question <laughs> and a sort of lighter note as well, like you must go out on a night out with your pals and you'll be in Camden or you'll be in Soho or something. You'll be like, you'll ask your mate, what are you up to? How's work? Uh, just working in this job, pretty boring. What about you? Uh, just back from North Korea. Like how do, how, do they, how do they
1: respond to that? I think most of my mates know that I'm, not exactly followed the most normal of career <laughs> yeah. paths. Now, I mean, I've spent time with some, I mean, and also they just kind of get a bit desensitized to it, right? I mean, I spent, a, I remember telling my mate actually that I once spent some time uh, with Anjem Chowdhury, who, you know, is a Islamic hate preacher, mm-hmm. was jailed for his support of ISIS, uh, was an inspiration to, you know, many, many people that went to fight for ISIS. And I spent, quite a bit of time with him and his followers uh and one guy who i spent quite a bit of time with uh actually ended up being one of the uh executioners for isis a guy called abu Ramesa. Hmm. so it's not not jihadi john but one of the guys that kind of took over from that he was the guy i think that was in the video pointing the knife at uh, the camera threatening david cameron Hmm. um and like I just remember like having a meal with them and I shared a garlic naan bread with the ISIS executioner. And mm. I remember just like thinking about it, like that was the best garlic naan bread I've ever had in my whole life. And like, I know that shouldn't be my takeaway, but like try to explain that to your mates or whatever, when you're in the pub, like, Oh, what have you been up to this week, Jake? Oh yeah. just been hanging around with, um, and and the boys, you know, it's, it, it, it's not exactly relatable, is it? But I love that stuff, man. Like I just, well that you yeah, so interesting. That's what I find most fascinating
0: and I suppose storytelling is your is just your passion overall. If you were to break it down to your whole what is your why well, think, or is it is it delving into other people's
1: extremities I, I as you I'm, say? I'm fascinated by people and I'm definitely fascinated by what makes people think, feel or believe things. But also I think especially in today's world of, you know, Twitter, shall we say, Mm. where nuance is kind of dead. You know, everything is right or wrong and grey areas don't really exist. Well, I, I don't believe that. But also I think what's really interesting is if you really want to understand something and not justify it, but you want to understand it, more times than not, it's an experiential process to understand something you have to experience it if you really want to understand why someone thinks or feels or believes something spend some time with them try and get to the nub of why they believe what they believe mm. now they could believe that authentically or they could be charlatans you know you can read and get so much information to infinity but if you want to understand something quite often that has to there has to be a human touch there it has to be experiential and I've always been really fascinated by that is so if you really want to know how the world works you kind of have to understand how the world works mm. and I'm not a particularly smart bloke anyway. And actually by spending time with people, I find is kind of how you really get to the heart of it. And that's what I find really interesting.
0: Yeah, I think that concept applies to so many things. You know, the whole the whole idea of people will say that they will study medicine for five years, but it's in fact that three or six month placement where they actually learn mm. everything. And it's like you can do all the theoretical reading and observing from a distance but until you've actually immersed yourself in something and I suppose ask Mm. the questions that are most pertinent to you to help you to understand do you think Mm. these people like Angie M. Trowdhury and stuff do they give you do they give you access do they give you or do they allow you into their inner fold because they see you as a conduit for getting their message out there or do they Actively appreciate, or do they appreciate that you're actively trying to understand? And maybe they feel they could influence your way of thinking because they're not letting you in just because they think you're a nice guy and they want to do you a favour. Mm. I mean, there's there's got to be some modus operandi on their part.
1: I think it it, it that's where it, it differs person to person. So if you look at someone like Anjem in particular, he saw his role and I think he's a bit of a narcissist, he sees his role as spreading the word, right? You know, Dawa. And mm-hmm. so if you give him an opportunity to mouth off, he gets some publicity. Uh, he gets some messaging out there. You know, mm-hmm. even if you're rallying against it, he then thinks that's great because he then gets to play the victim. So you're serving a PR purpose for him. And you have to understand that when you're doing that with these people. So it's not mm-hmm. to just let them say whatever they want unchecked, unbalanced and and you know, and and to not push back on things. But also I think there's still a purpose in that because if you allow someone to just say, well, no one will talk to me, then they do get to play the victim. And people go, well, why are they trying to stop him from saying that? Mm-hmm. Maybe he's onto something. And I, I think some people there is that kind of earnest, I I want to see if if I can um you know change the way you think about the world. And you know, some people are just interested to try and to try and convince and change you. Um, you know, Anjum Chowdhury, he, God, I still before he kind of allowed me to spend any time with him, I didn't spend that much time with him, but before he allowed me to spend any time with him, I had to go meet him in some cafe uh, so he could ask me questions. And I'm um, still not sure if he was doing this to like psych me out or something, but I, like, he like took me into the back of this sort of cafe and he sits there. Uh, you know, he's kind of looking at me up and down and he's saying, so why do you want to spend time with me? And then just as he does that, this is at like 9.30 in the morning, right? They bring a, someone brings in a massive ice cream sundae. And he starts like eating this giant ice cream thing, like looking me in the eyes. And I'm thinking, is this like some sort of test or something? Am I supposed to say, why are you eating an ice cream at 9.30? Like, is that yeah. your breakfast or something? And he just, uh, oh, he's a bizarre bloke. I mean, he, he, he just, he's a narcissist and mm. also, you know, wants to use you as a PR tool. Um, But yeah, I I think people do it, sorry, I went on a tangent there, but people do it for different reasons. Um, uh, And largely, I would say, it's either to use you as a PR opportunity or because maybe you have managed to convince them that you're willing to give them a fair crack of the whip and Mm -hmm. that you're not looking to do a hatchet job on them and that you are trying to understand. And that's I'm always hopeful of that because that I I am never looking to do a hatchet job on anyone Mm -hmm. whenever I speak to anyone. I don't know if this I feel
0: like this might apply to you I might be wrong for me anybody I speak to or anything that I ever create is done purely for my own enjoyment if that makes sense Mm. out of my own curiosity and then when I create it and then put it out I find that people will sometimes enjoy it I don't know if they see it as being very authentic as being very real and it's almost like well I'm creating this I don't want to call it this art but I'm creating this thing and whether someone Mm. listens to it or whether they don't I've got what I want to get out of it. I'm not creating it for praise or to impress anybody. It's because I want to mm-hmm. have this conversation. I want to have it here. I want to ask these questions. And again, if it goes out, if people like it, great. If they don't, I don't really care because my satisfaction doesn't come from that. That prop probably would, I don't know if that would, if people That's would. That's
1: definitely I, a motivator for me. Yeah. I mean, people I'm, probably, I'm the kind of person. Sorry on your go. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say I, I, I'm the kind of person that if I'm really interested in something, I'll work my fingers to the bone for it because mm. it's I'm fascinated and I just want to do it. Uh, if I'm not, that's a different story. And I think if you're working on particular you know, storytelling or journalism or whatever you want to call it, if it's not something that naturally fascinates you and intrigues and interests you, why would you do it? Because you're never going to do a great job. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was never particularly interested in following like a you know more of a formalized entry into journalism where maybe you have a particular beat you know in tech or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would do that awfully. I'm way too interested in the stuff that that I want to find out about the weird stuff or 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 even very diverse stuff right it you know it doesn't all neatly fa- fit into one genre or sector and, and I think if if that's the the first port of call has to be if you're doing something that you love and that you're happy with, if no one else ever listens to it, well, it's still a win. Exactly. It doesn't make any difference. It's almost
0: even like, um, I don't know, searching or studying information just so you can drop these wee knowledge bombs at a party to impress people. Like they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, so, you know, you're not doing it because you're interested in it. And then if you have that information, if no one ever asks you, that's then been a waste of time. Whereas, you know, if if you're scratching that itch and you're satisfying that curiosity... On your own part, or for your own enjoyment, then then anything else is just a bonus from it. And I suppose mm. when when you do work that way, as you say, you work your fingers to the bone, and it turns out to be a very interesting, credible, and uh, and far-reaching piece of work. And, and then the I suppose the irony is you then get that praise, or you have you build up a bit of a following or a listener base, and it's funny, mm. I suppose. Uh, advice to anybody who's undertaking anything, don't do it unless you actually enjoy it because it will come across.
1: I I also think that and the kind of way that I always felt about it, um, and and I think how I got opportunities to work at Vice or do things for the BBC or, or whoever else, is quite a lot of people you know, get in touch with with various places and say, hello, my name's Jake and, you know, I like to do these things and please give me an opportunity, mm. which is fine and that's right. But the way I kind of really thought about it when I decided, you know, sort of at uni or leaving just uni that how I was going to get on and get opportunities and get them quickly without respecting necessarily the hierarchy is if you can identify the interesting stories, the interesting people, ingratiate yourself with them, get access, which is you know the, the most important, the be-all and end-all of all of it. Mm. If you can offer opportunities and access to places like Vice and elsewhere that they can't just go and do themselves, then you're making yourself invaluable to it. So when you're approaching them, you're saying, my name's Jake, and this is what I can do for you that you can't do without me. Yeah, and that was kind of how I managed to have a few wins. And then, you know, with a lot of these places, you know, once your foot's through the door, that's that then turns into into other opportunities. Certainly, when I was at Vice, that's what happened for me. But um, and and I think that's a that's the right angle to approach. Right? Is you know, be bullish about it.
0: Mm, yeah, totally agree. So all of that about perfect storytelling or storytelling for the enjoyment and curiosity leads me right on to Message Heard. Um, now, again, I will give my explanation of what I believe it to be, but basically it's a company creating branded podcasts and original podcasts included Conflicted, which is quite easily, I would say, my top three of all time and my favorite of, of the last year or two anyway. Um, it's been nominated for the best independent podcast at the Arias. Um, for 2020, it is incredible. We'll talk about that in detail, but first of all, I mean, just talk me through how Message
1: Heard came came uh, to being. Well, firstly, that's very generous praise, so thank you very much for that, and you've earned that fiver I said I was going to give you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it came about really because, um, you know, I, I, I was. Like we talked about, I was doing this kind of journalism and and this kind of interesting storytelling, and you know, it's kind of flitting around, and then it kind of came to a head when I when I started doing more and more stuff for BBC, and in particular, <clears throat> doing some stuff for BBC Radio Four, and uh, this was maybe three years ago now. And, you know, podcasting was still massively popular
0: Mm. and
1: I was a huge fan of it as a a medium for storytelling. But I kind of felt that we were so reliant on US companies to tell those big stories in very US ways. Mm. You know, the serials of this world. And it's not bad. That's not 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 being critical of that. But I think there's a distinct difference between the way in which British people and American people both want to tell and receive stories. You know, our sensibilities are different. You know, the, the tone, the style. And I kind of felt that there wasn't really anything that reflected maybe that little bit more of a reverend or British style of storytelling. And, and, you know, the BBC is, is what it is. It's a, it's, it's a behemoth and, and and I'm not a a basher of the BBC, but what the BBC makes you do is it makes you do things the BBC way, which is, you know, there's a cold analytical stoicism to it. You know, here I am doing my BBC voice. And like, I was thinking, (sighs) I don't talk like this. And like, I don't want to hear stories that are always told like that because the joy of podcasting is it's, there's a warmth it's conversational it's you know it it, it's intimate you feel like you know the hosts you know you can there's no rules and i felt like there wasn't anywhere in the uk that was reflective of that and so i set out to i was like in the end fuck it i'll try and build it myself and and so i founded message heard you know just over two years ago and we're we're two sides right so we do our own editorial stuff that we you know take to market that under our own brand that we, you know, we're really proud about. We also create stuff like Spotify and other places and we do branded stuff as well. But that's that's not that's not the most interesting. You know, for me it was about how do we tell amazing or undertold stories and, and sometimes quite complex and big things, but in a way that makes it accessible and digestible. Because I'd never agree with that approach of like you're either a super serious politics person or you're a slapstick comedy person. Hmm. Everyone is everything of what they're interested in, depending upon their mood and and ultimately the quality of that story and how it's being told. And I kind of felt that there was a real opportunity to do something a little bit different, a little bit more British in style and and ultimately just tell amazing and interesting stories. For me, this is the
0: the most interesting and amazing one. So again, I'll give my spin on um, how I have found it to be, what it is, and then we can Again, you can explain in far more eloquent detail. So, conflicted is Thomas Small, who was an American. He went to become a monk in the Middle East. I'm sure a Christian monk.
1: Yeah, he lived up a mountain in uh, in Greece first. And, right. Okay. And then we
0: have Eamon <laughs> Dean, who was born in Saudi Arabia, who joined Al Qaeda at the age of maybe 15, 16. After being radicalized, uh, he was basically Osama bin Laden was his boss. At times he would report mm. to Osama bin Laden. Again, you're hearing that right. Osama bin Laden was his boss. He was involved in sort of logistics and the business side of of Al-Qaeda, but he was also fighting on the ground in four different continents, I think, if I remember correctly. He was on the ground in the Philippines. Yeah, he fought all over. He, he was, what, so what happened was he was basically caught by MI6 and they gave him the opportunity. They said, you either defect and you become a double agent or you'll be going to prison for a very long time he's gone on and done that and then he was I, mean, I think he was responsible for assisting and preventing a lot of attacks and a lot of threats to the western or western civilization he was outed by none other than Dick Cheney um, I think he maybe did it accidentally and it, it appeared in a Time magazine article and he had to then flee for obvious reasons now The podcast itself, I think Series 1 is explaining how Middle Eastern politics and society came to be the way that it is and how they're all sort of interdependent and the roles in which each nation or each state um, has has gone on to have in in the Middle East that we see today. And then we go on to Series 2 and you'll discuss, I think there's Russia, Wall Street, climate crisis, um, the 9-11, the September 11th attacks in New York City. And how all of these events are all intertwined and inextricably linked in a way, which Mm. is seeing the, the bringing about of what we know to be the new world order. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the one that George, is it George H.W. Bush or the older one anyway, George Bush's dad, um, that he spoke about (laughs) when he gave that, um, when he gave that famous speech, you know, it'll be the rule of law, not Mm. the rule of the jungle. We see the new world order, but I said, perhaps like talking about new world order that will come about from other forces, be it China, Russia. We also hear, I mean, I will stop talking now, but basically this podcast, I'm now listening to it for my third time to go all the way through, because to begin with, you're taking in a lot of complex information that's unpacked in a very easily digestible and very entertaining way, because I laugh out loud quite a lot. These two guys are unbelievably intelligent. They're best pals. Uh, And they, as I say, they unpack it and explain it in, in such a simple way. But the first time you listen, you'll go, fucking hell, I did not consider that to be the reality. And then what happens is you've missed the next two or three minutes. So you're kind of having to go back. But then the more you listen to it, the more you pick up and the more enjoyable it is. I have never, have I ever listened to something or watched something or read something that has made me do a complete 180. And what I thought to be the truth and what I thought to be my opinion and what I thought to be like reality. And it's just incredible. And I've told so many people to listen to it and there's everybody, everybody keeps coming back and saying, wow, this is unbelievable. So I suppose the first question I have is how does such a complex concept even come about? Like, how does
1: that begin? Well, I think you described it quite well there. Actually, probably better than I could do, in all honesty. Um, so for me, it was, so I've known Eamon for um four or five years, something like that, and and I kind of, I first met him, in. in you know, with, because I'd kind of heard about him, and I thought, "Wow, this is amazing! This guy who was an al Qaeda, he was a bomb maker, he was, you know, one of Bin Laden's of, you know, uh, pledged allegiance to Bin Laden, and kind of fought in Bosnia and all around the world, and then became an MI rather than just leaving, actually became MI 6s you know, top double agent trying to bring him down." Right? Mm. I thought this is the most amazing person I've I've ever heard of. I need to meet this person, yeah. and I, I got in touch with him, and we met up. Um. And the thing about Eamon is he de- doesn't fit any particular stereotype of every kind of um trope of a, you know, of a terrorist that you'd imagine, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you think of like the the big burly guy with like a huge beard and kind of angry demeanor. Eamon is like five foot three, thick glasses, uh, you know, slightly high-pitched voice. Um and uh he's addicted to Diet Coke and he's essentially a nerd, <laughs> right? And and I, you know, he won't mind me saying that. And he also he he's he's fundamentally a sweet man. Yeah. I know that's quite a strange thing to say. And I kind of I first met him and I and I was kind of enthralled by him and we kind of became mates really. And and I kind of knew that when I wanted to start Message Heard and kind of, you know, we had an opportunity to do a few different shows as we were kind of launching to kind of, I guess get a bit of a sense of identity of the kind of stories that we wanted to be telling. And and for me, I I didn't know how yet, but I knew this was someone whose story needs to be told more. Mm -hmm. Uh, He needs to be listened to because it's not just his personal story, his knowledge of the world, you know, which is informed by his experiences, but just the guy's a genius, right? You know, he, he's, he's a savant, like he's like rain man for extremist terrorism. It's completely bizarre and i just knew that i had to work with him in some way so i kind of you know rang him up and said amen we need to work together you know we need to tell your story and we need to you know the world should listen to your not just your experiences but also your your thoughts and your beliefs um because i i don't think there's anything else l- like that out there and he was in agreement you know amen okay let us do it you know like he you uh, know he sort of that's one thing. I can do a very good aim and impersonation actually, but maybe that doesn't make much sense if I do it on the <laughs> yeah, I am alive, Thomas. I am alive. Thank you for asking. That was <laughs> a very bad, good uh, impression. <laughs> yeah, it's quite good. I hope he doesn't hear this. Um, but And he goes, yeah, okay, right, let's do it. And he goes, look, what about if we get my mate Thomas involved? Thomas is an Californian ex-Greek monk who has a deep understanding and knowledge about the Middle East. Wandered around Syria after maybe thinking that Muhammad was a prophet. Mm. I was thinking, this guy sounds just as nuts as you. He sounds great. So I kind of met up with them both and realized that here was now, and they are generally great mates. And and there's got a lot of parallels between their lives. And they are like the odd couple of extremism. Mm. Like you can just sit them in a room and just wind them up and get them to talk about stuff and they do it in such a way that it really didn't take much planning or that much thoughtfulness from us you know from me and and the team that make it because they are such interesting people with so much to say it's just about kind of giving them a little bit of direction and steer uh-huh. and and i think the most crucial thing for me and what what i wanted to do with that show and, and luckily people are always um very uh, responsive to this, and 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 often make point of mentioning it, which I'm always thankful for, is to make a show which was incredibly complicated and you know uh, hard subject matters to deal with at its core, but to do it in a way where you didn't need eight letters after your name and a doctorate to understand mm-hmm. what people were talking about. We wanted to make it accessible and digestible, you know, to take the big complicated themes of 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 life uh, and, and, and conflict and distill it in a way that really makes you go, I didn't understand that, but now I do. I yeah. may have 10 more questions rather than having answers, but at least I understand it. And, and, and luckily I think we've got a, um, a system that, that works. I think, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've got a loyal and, and, and a growing audience and people love, love it because it's, it's that, it's that idea of like when you read a book for the first time and you loved it and you put it down and then mm-hmm. you know you don't want it to end, right? And 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 that's what Eamon and Thomas are masters of. You know, they're they're they are they they are they are geniuses, you know. They're, they're amazing and I, I love working with them. Two sex, I need to grab my charge, mate. Hold on. Sure.
0: Apologies, I just noticed that I was at five percent, and that would have been a disaster if I had cut out. <laughs> no um, worries. Yeah, that's also one of the things that I love most is that they could just be talking about anything, the weather, what they got up to, and I would find it very entertaining. Mm. I think it is that dynamic. I'm, I'm like blown away. I didn't realize two people could be so intelligent. There's anything they'll be brought up and they, they they can just recall it as if they're, they're remembering their own address. Like it just comes very easily. The fact that Thomas also speaks Arabic and Eamon says he was mm. blown away by how well he speaks Arabic. When Eamon speaks English, he uses words where I'm thinking, okay, I know what these words mean, but it would never occur to me in my first language to use them in any sort of sentence. It is just it's absolutely so sure by a surefire
1: way to make yourself feel stupid is spend prolonged periods of time with Thomas and Eamon. You go <laughs> yeah. out for lunch with them, which I do sometimes, and it's like, wow, I'm dumb. Yeah.
0: These guys <laughs> are just
1: operating on another level. It's crazy. Completely out
0: your depth. I'm also really fascinated by Eamon's most recent professional undertakings which have been working for big banks and preventing money laundering through funding terrorism and it's like right it just shows you by the way that nobody's beyond redemption if you can be an oh, al-qaeda exactly. bomb maker and you're now one of the main men for the top banks and mi6 you know nothing nothing is out of your reach no matter what you've done in life
1: well he always and he always aim and he's probably said it on the show actually but he always says that that that's that one joke he says, you know, first I was an al-Qaeda, then I became joined MI6, and then then I became a real terrorist. I went to be a banker. <laughs> yeah. And he loves that gag. And he just like says it over and over again. But yeah, he he's the perfect um example for you know, and, and I would say, I believe that redemption is on offer for everyone. Mm. Right. If you, and I don't mean that in a, in a Christian way, that sounded quite, you know, godly, but I just mean that, you know, that I think that if you're willing to make up for, 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 for past deeds, then there's always a path back to that. Right. And if you can go from being leading Al Qaeda's, you know, chemical weapons program <laughs> to then trying to make a benefit, you know, make the world a better place. and And if you think about, it in terms of um, you know numbers he thwarted way more attacks than he was probably part of mm-hmm. or, you know or it was linked to um, y- you shouldn't write anyone off right and he was 16 years old when he went to Bosnia to fight uh, you know to, to wage jihad in defense of Bosnian Muslims and like, how many other people have made stupid fucking decisions as 16 year olds oh I don't know if I can swear actually I just no swore, you can sorry. that's totally fine don't worry all right um, but do you know what I mean? Like, and, and he's he's a he's a very good example of how you could do the most extremely awful things in the world. But if you generally want to change and are willing to put the work in to be a better person and make up for that, then there is a path back to that, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. You said something earlier about being interested in finding out why people make the decisions they do and why they believe what they do. And I was going to ask mm-hmm. the question and I didn't because I thought this is a just a bit too area fairy or predictable, but I will ask it now because this is a great example. Do you think through having, look at the way the world is just now and we're all completely at odds with each other, you also said that nuance doesn't exist. There's no grey areas. Everything's black mm. and white, especially in the world of soundbite, 280 mm. characters, Twitter. And the question I was going to ask was, do you think if we did just listen to each other and our motivations that that we could understand the understand the reasoning for, for why people do things. And I know that sounds very vague, but let's just, and I'm totally waffling on, you might even just not even know what the fuck I'm asking you. Right? <laughs> well, take this example. So Thomas, it's not Thomas, sorry, Eamon was saying that when he was about 15, 16, and he decided he wanted to join Al-Qaeda and go and fight in Bosnia or whatever. And I think it was maybe after his dad had passed away. And I think he was a bit mm. lost in the world. And somebody said to him, like, why would you go and do that? Al Qaeda don't need you, they're fine. And he said, Yeah, but I need Al Qaeda because he had no position mm. in the world. He didn't know what he was. He had been led to believe, you know, on the surface, right? Let's remove grey areas. We could say, no, nope, Al Qaeda bad, Al Qaeda evil, and everybody knows it. But the way that it's presented to somebody when they're in this position of like vulnerability and fragility and they're just desperate to cling on to something. And he had it presented to him as, you know, you're fighting for God and this is God's will and it is a very righteous thing to do. You'll be part of something bigger. Uh, you know, it's something for you to focus your energies towards and to go towards in life. And when I heard him saying that, I was like, I would have probably joined Al-Qaeda as well, like if I was in your position. It's not that he saw he saw an opportunity to like maim and torture and kill, but he just saw an opportunity to be part of something. And that brings me all the way back to, yeah, maybe not Angie M. Trowdy is probably not a, a great example, but even the North Koreans are the importance of conversation and listening to people and why we sort of do these things. And as you say, it, I have just rambled on, but I think I have partly got out what I wanted to express there as well.
1: No, it's, it's interesting. Um I mean, there's a couple of things that I think, right, which is... <clears throat> and people might disagree with me and think I'm an idiot and I'm wrong and I, and I don't claim to be a particularly smart person, but is, I think fundamentally human beings are herd animals. We have to have a sense of cohesion and a sense of community and a sense of belonging because you know no one wants to feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And quite a lot of times the people who end up moving towards the fringes of these extreme organizations or extreme beliefs is... A sense of isolation right so Anjem Chaudhry actually said to me I remember him saying it is that you know I'm a shepherd for the lost sheep right hmm. and, and that what that says to me is that you know they are they're they're picking up picking off people the misfits the people that don't quite fit in and giving them a new sense of community and a new sense of self-worth and every single person wants that and I think when you spend time with these people there is nothing bad about trying to understand someone's motivations and where mm-hmm. they come from. That is not a direct comparison as in justifying it; it's understanding it. And I think there's one um, sort of thing I quite like, which is, um, and it, I probably sound a bit wanky saying this, but I can't, I can't remember. I think it's from like a poem or something, but it's, and I, but I think it's true, right? And it goes, um, "I know what all school children learn to those who em- who to those who." whom evil is done do evil in return Mm. and I've always liked that because I think that that's there's a truth to that as well you're either a lost and looking for a sense of belonging or you're a victim someone's done something awful to you and so how do you how do you deal with that maybe it's doing evil back yeah yeah it makes complete sense
0: the um I just had. I'm not going to pretend that I'm pulling this one right off the top of my head. I did have to search it because I could remember. I couldn't remember who said it, but I could remember it. But the Aristotle is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And I think Mm. that just totally sums sums that up. You know, in order to really consider something or to to be able to to, absolutely to formulate an opinion, you first have to be able to to understand it and comprehend it before. And just as you say that trying to understand it and, and work out where does it come from? Because it doesn't just come out of thin air, as you say about if evil is done, that there's obviously a, some sort of motivating factor. What is it? Let's try and find it. And how do we do that by having conversations and, and asking questions? What um What is next for Conflicted? You, you mentioned it about Series 3 the other day. Is, that, mm. is it in production? Is it nearly
1: done? I fucking need it, so please do it fast. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's like... I'm drip feeding it to you um, yeah so we we actually uh, recorded a bonus episode today so there's a bonus episode coming out soon which is effectively you know one of the things that we uh, have had there's so much feedback about I want to know about this and I want to know about this and can you explain more about this so what we kind of did was we took a lot of the great questions and themes that people have asked us yeah. um, and, and we've done like a Q&A for Thomas and Eamon to go through some of that As for season three, absolutely, it's in the works. Um, Haven't started recording it yet, unfortunately. But the plan is to not leave it too long. So we are starting to actively think about that at the moment. Um, And I'm I'm excited for it to come back as well because I think, um, you know, the response to it has been so amazing that, um, you know, and, and, and me and the team, we love making that show as well. Like it's actually just such a fun thing to make. Yeah, I tell you
0: what, if you're ever looking for just a runner or for anybody to make tea and coffee, ah. and my, only, uh, my only demand or request is that I get to just sit in while it's being recorded. I'll just be sitting like watching it. It's just, it's incredible. And to anybody, I, I mean, if if all of that, that that we've explained and talked about hasn't motivated you enough to go and listen to it, just take my word for it. It is utterly sublime and um, it ticks every single box. And it'll blow your mind, so go and listen to it. Conflicted, you'll get it anywhere you listen to, to podcasts. Basically, you know the you know the fucking drill by now. Like right? how you get your podcast. So what about anything coming up? Is there any other things or is, is conflicted your your main focus just now?
1: No, we're working on uh lots of different stuff at the moment. Um some I can talk about, some I can't really. One thing that I'm actually pretty excited about is It's uh, about to be, in early July, it's about to be 25 years since um, the last genocide on European soil in Srebrenica in Bosnia. And we're actually doing uh, uh, a show looking at those events, uh, you know, really drilling down into what happened there and why. And and I think it's one of those, in the same mold as Conflicted, it's taking a very big, complicated you know, moment throughout history and trying to distill it into a way that's going to be interesting to people that aren't history buffs Mm -hmm. and don't aren't already aware of it. And I think we've got a really great show that's coming out soon because for me, something like that is that's a genocide and living memory for most people. I'm sure most people, including me, I couldn't tell you that much about it before we started working on that. And I think that that kind of stuff really excites me because not only is important, there's, an, there's some amazing stories we're telling a part of that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is being announced in July uh, and and it should be out sometime in September. Mm. Brilliant. Ever, I
0: think conflicted and certainly that as well to me sounds like, and this sounds like a wanky comment, but I can say it because it's not about myself. It's about somebody else. <laughs> um, but it's a very important artistic and entertainment contribution, but also a social contribution to be educating people and, and enlightening them and things that we should know about but that we don't always for, for one reason or another um, this has been this has been a real pleasure I really kind of thank you enough for get, being so generous with your time um, I feel like we'll probably do it again in a while because i I've I'm just got to go away wait, wait I should have asked this and I've got a hundred more questions so uh-huh. as long as you're up for it I definitely would be but Jake thanks very
1: much for for coming on Oh mate thank you so much it was you know Amazing to chat to you, and kind of it's nice for me to waffle on and bore someone for a change. No, oh, it's been an absolute but pleasure. Uh, no, thank you for having me, mate. Would, uh, great to chat, and let's let's keep talking. And I and I promise that um, Scouts' honour, I'll let you know as soon as I know about season three for conflicted, because yes. I know that means a lot to you. It does, it does, and also
0: <laughs> um, for a wee a wee party at the. I never thought I would say oh, this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I never thought I'd say this, but right, yeah. I'm looking forward to going to a wee party with you at the uh, the embassy for North Korea. And act in town.
1: we we'll left some vinegary white wine in honour of uh, our Supreme Leader. You're in. God bless you, Kim Jong Un. Bletherd was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and
0: post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com.
1: From The Big Light Studio.